Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed Hey there, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati in this week for Scott Schaefer and also thrilled to have Katie Orr with us in Sacramento. Hey, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We're coming to you on this New Year's Eve with a look at the year ahead in California politics. That's right. We could not find anything better to do this evening. So we're going to mix it up, start out with some of the biggest questions we have in California politics, looking ahead in 2021, and then preview some of the policy issues that the three of us will be closely following in the new year. Uh, First, we want to start with the politics. We just made it through uh, an election year. We have a few hours left in 2020 as we tape this. But Marisa, Katie, it looks like 2021 has the possibility of being another election year. I'm not talking about the special election to fill state Senate seats. There's a potential recall uh, of Governor Gavin Newsom bubbling up. Could this really happen next year? I mean, are we really ready for another election? I mean, I'm exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to crawl under my desk now and hide for the next year if that's the case, right? Right. I mean, this. so just to fill everyone in basically on where this stands, the big date that we're waiting for is March 17th. That's when this uh, committee to recall or put a recall on the ballot needs to submit 1.5 million valid signatures. So they'll probably have to submit a lot more than that, maybe up to 2 million uh, signatures. There will be some uh, invalid signatures. Right now, the committee says they have about 800,000, 900,000. But a big news this week on Tuesday, the biggest donation that that committee has gotten so far, half a million dollars from a uh, Orange County consulting firm called Proverb 3-9. And not not much detail beyond that. I mean, yeah. I will just say it's, you know, is this is Newsom going to be recalled? My guess is no. I mean, but the fact that we're even talking about it and the fact that it's something that he has to think about on top of, you know, a pandemic that is decimating the state, um, you know, it's it's going to be sucking up some oxygen in the in the political world in the in the coming weeks. Yeah, I mean, I think this is interesting. It, it sort of started pretty slowly, was chugging along. Um, you know, the bigger, the biggest name sort of associated so far has been John Cox, of course, who ran unsuccessfully against Newsom for governor two years ago. Um, I agree with Katie. I think that if this gets on the ballot, it's going to be an uphill battle for Republicans in part just finding a candidate. I mean, we know that former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner is planning on challenging Newsom in 2022. But to to turn, I mean, for a Republican to win a statewide race, which hasn't happened in over a decade in California, is a big lift anyway. To try to turn that around in the short time frame we would have to during a recall would be, I think, pretty 
challenging, even for a good candidate like Faulkner. Totally. And I think, you know, that is an advantage Republicans have is they have a candidate kind of waiting in the wings. And that's something that was kind of similar to the to the last recall that we saw in California of Governor Gray Davis, where Arnold Schwarzenegger and Faulkner is, is uh, no terminator. But Arnold Schwarzenegger was kind of waiting in the wings to run uh, at the end of Gray Davis's next term. The recall came up. He kind of jumped on the opportunity. And so I think it's potential that we could see Faulkner do the same kind of thing. It's fascinating to me uh, of all the crazy things that have happened in 2020. It shows how far we've come. I think at this point last year, we were talking about, you know, Faulkner had just started uh, murmurs that he was going to be possibly running for governor. He was really going to be focusing on the issue of homelessness. Beginning of the year, we saw Newsom uh, roll out a state of the state that was exclusively focused on homelessness. Now it seems like that's way far down the list of the things that Republicans could potentially run uh, against Newsom in a recall campaign. There's so much else uh, that's happened this year. Well, and I think we're seeing Newsom acknowledge that. You know, he brought on Democratic political consultant Jim DeBoo, who's now in his executive uh, staff with, uh, in the governor's office. Um, we see, and I know we'll get into it, but he just announced a plan to reopen schools which has been a huge issue for parents ever since this pandemic started. A lot of people have been giving him criticism because he hasn't taken a really active lead on that. And we see him right now stepping up. Again, a sign that he is aware that there is some political pressure out there and he's trying to head it off to whatever, um, you know, to his best ability. To the best of his ability. Yeah, I was just going to say that I think some of this is just due to the fact that Newsom, like most folks in any position of power in the United States or the world right now, got dealt a bad hand in 2020. I mean, man, we all got dealt a, dealt a bad <laughs> hand in 2020, right? Um, you know, and, and I do think to your point, Guy, that like, yes, obviously, all those issues that were, you know, at the top of the list a, a year ago, homelessness, childcare, um, education, wildfires still exist. But clearly, whether you're in D.C. or Sacramento or any other state house or city hall, COVID-19 is the issue of the hour. I do think that that, that might be um, driving some of the energy around this recall effort. And I think that you know, one thing that's going to be that I'll be watching is to see kind of how things play out in the next few months beyond whether this recall qualifies, of course. But like, if people are getting vaccinated, if the state is doing a good job with that, if, you know, the new, which I know we're going to talk about, a head of employment development department actually does a good job there. If you see some of this stuff, I think, becoming less urgent by the summer, I think, again, we'll be talking very differently about Newsom's political fortunes. Like, it feels right now like he's very much under fire, and he is, some of which, are, you know, are missteps totally on his end the the french laundry dinner for example i think bowing to pressure uh from some counties to reopen too soon um but the truth is like he a lot of the covid stuff especially were not things under his control this year and so it just shows you like that the political sort of the winds of political fortune are not just based on who you are or how good of a politician or leader you are um and i think newsom on top of that, I mean, you mentioned the debut appointment, Katie. I think that that it shows, too, that he understood that he needed a change in his office. And I think that's something I'll be watching is can he make that happen? There's been not a lot of leadership on some issues. I think some muddling of others. And I think that there's a real sense that he needs to rebuild his relationship with the legislature this year if he wants to get any of this stuff done that could potentially fend off Faulkner, whether it's next year or in 2022. Yeah, he'll definitely need to really consolidate support within his party. One way uh, he might be able to do 
that is he still has another big appointment potentially coming up uh, in January for attorney general. I think there's a potential he's holding out. Javier Becerra still needs to go through the the approval process uh, in Washington. But we've seen just in December, he, he named Alex Padilla, the, the replacement in the U.S. Senate, Shirley Weber, the replacement in, of Secretary of State. There's still this big appointment card he has uh, in the attorney general's office. You know, what do we think when that might come down and, and how might he use that in the way that we've seen him kind of use these first two appointments really uh, in response to calls from different groups? We had, you know, the, the Black Caucus. We had Latino groups say, you know, we really want you to prioritize putting the first uh, Latino senator from California. How do you think Newsom might be looking at this attorney general appointment, given also his need to shore up support in the party? Well, I think, you know, one thing to note about the um, the Senate appointment is I don't I don't want to say he bungled it, <laughs> but I think it turned into a, a big headache for him. Uh, you know, Alex Padilla was long rumored to like, you know, to have, you know, people knew he wanted to be in the Senate. He and Gavin Newsom are friends. Um, he could have just sort of appointed him and tidied it up and put who someone in the Secretary of State's office and like, bam, done. But he didn't. And, you know, he has his reasons, I know, but he it got drawn out. And so then it became a fight about, you know, should uh, Padilla be appointed? Should there be an African-American woman appointed, as you mentioned, because, you know, to replace Kamala Harris, because she was the only African-American woman in the U.S. Senate. And now to have the additional pressure of having an attorney general, potentially a, an attorney general appointment, he he's facing a lot of similar pressure. You know, does he appoint um, Rob Bonta, who I know has been a, a Assemblyman Rob Bonta, who has expressed interest in that? Does he appoint um, Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg, who served in the legislature for a long time? Does he appoint perhaps um, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, who had hoped to run for Secretary of State uh, if she had not been appointed? And now it's looking like, especially if Shirley Weber chooses to run again, she won't run for that seat. So, you know, is that an option? And I think it just took something that maybe could have been like a political gift. And I think even I've heard you say this guy, turn it into kind of like a political head. Right. It turned into, it was like the golden opportunity. Uh, these three appointments have now become this huge headache. On the other hand, let me just play devil's advocate here. I agree with you. And I think it did cause some consternation within like the political class and folks like us that watch it. But at the end of the day, Newsom came out and appointed the first Latino to ever represent California in the U.S. Senate, Alex Padilla, a man who's only really on the Democratic side. Republicans have the problems with him, but they were going to have a problem with anybody. But, you know, the only real, I think, criticism you hear is th this identity question of should he replace Kamala Harris with a black woman? And I think it's a valid one. I've been talking about it. I think, you know, that's not to take away from that. But the truth is, Padilla, you know, I think when it finally happened, it was a very moving moment. You know, he teared up. He has this incredible immigrant story. Um, and then Newsom did, you know, he waited long enough, but he turned around and made Shirley Weber the Secretary of State, which in itself, I think it was a very powerful nod to some of those questions over racial politics. Um, and also just Shirley Weber is an amazing person. Um, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to our interview with her. I mean, she's the daughter of sharecroppers. She has had a remarkable life story. Her, her, her dad fled the South and she became, you know, a PhD and a state assemblywoman. And now she's going to go on to become the Secretary of State. I mean, I do think that like, 
as as we move forward away from this, it'll look a lot rosier than it did in the moment for Newsom. And I think that he did do some, you know, kind of impressive political jujitsu with the Weber appointment. Um, and as as we kind of alluded to, there's more ahead, right? There is the potentially, hopefully for them, the Becerra appointment. Um, and then there's also this question of will Diane Feinstein actually serve out her term? Um, and so I do think that like, if you combine that stuff and then you think about whether he can do this thing about, you know, trying to actually build a relationship with the legislature in 2021, he might be in a better spot in a few months than it felt like he was in mid-November. I think one thing to keep in mind about these important appointments is that it it's really highlighted um, the the lack of women of of color in office, in higher office, and just avail the availability of them to appoint to these higher offices. And that's certainly not on, you know, women of color. It just talks about, it speaks to our society and how, you know, they haven't been, um, these women have not been placed in positions where they're, you know, easily, you know, put into a, a higher position. If, especially if you start looking around at like attorney general, um, it's a limited pool of women of color who are attorneys and are qualified for that position in the first place. And I think that is also one of the arguments that people had for appointing a woman, you know, to the U.S. Senate, because the the scope, the, the pool of candidates is is wider there than for something like an attorney general's uh, position. Right. And before we leave the appointment carousel, I want to throw one more thing out there, which is that the head of California's labor agency, Julie Su, is among the names being considered by uh, President-elect Joe Biden to be labor secretary. That would add another kind of wrench uh, in the top of, of California's government. Sue's not really a, a brand name uh, in California, but she's been working for decades uh, on you know worker issues. She got her start in the 90s in L.A. fighting for garment workers um, who had been trafficked in, in sweatshops in the L.A. area. Um, and she certainly has all the qualifications you'd expect in a labor secretary. She's led this labor, huge labor agency in California. The one big red flag that would definitely come up in any confirmation hearings is EDD. She oversees California's Employment Development Department, which has been an absolute disaster uh, this year, obviously dealing with unprecedented levels uh, of claims um, and working with old technology. But we've seen a combination of incredible delays mixed with fraud. I mean, claims going to people in state prison. Um, and so I think that would definitely come up uh, if Julie Sue was tapped by the Biden administration. Um, and we saw just this week, uh, as you alluded to, uh, the governor named a new head of the Employment Development uh, Department, Rita Sainz, who uh, has a lot of work ahead of her. <laughs> let's just let's yeah. say that. Before we go to break, I quickly just want to touch on uh, some of the highlights we might be seeing in the Biden administration, the role in 2021 that California might be playing, uh, both in the administration and in Washington. We've seen some appointments, Javier Becerra to, to lead HHS uh, in the Biden administration. But how might you see, Marisa, Californians writ large playing a big role, I think also in Congress, uh, as, as to how this Biden administration rolls out? Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, you see all these people being kind of recruited from California, even as Newsom is under fire, even as, you know, Republicans continually use California as like, you know, the the cause of all of life's problems. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think you you have this interesting narrative. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that Becerra, should he get confirmed, is going to bring a really interesting lens there. Um, he's he and Biden have already been talking about this idea of equity in healthcare care and, and looking at things through the lens of what even before COVID-19 has been a deeply unfair and un inequitable system towards 
particularly black Americans, but people of color more generally. And I so I think that that kind of framing and again, coming from a man who was raised by immigrants who has just a different life experience than what we've seen often at the head of these agencies is going to be really powerful. Um, and so I think that, you know, if, if he can get through that gauntlet in the Senate, it'll be really an, an interesting um kind of direction for them to be taking. And, you know, I think especially given the fact that I think Obama had to really underplay some of the racial issues or felt that he had for political reasons, that you're seeing Biden really come out and put that front and center. And arguably, maybe he has more leeway to do that as a white man who's sort of a centrist, right? Um, so yeah, so I'll definitely be watching Becerra. And then of course, briefly before we go, we can't uh, not touch on Nancy Pelosi, San Francisco's own uh, representative in Congress, of course, running for speaker uh, again on Sunday when the new Congress gets sworn in. She's got a very tight margin to walk, um, which has you know, been made even tighter by a couple of uh, uh, things that have happened lately. I, I guess that this probably won't make a difference, but I think it's worth mentioning that a newly elected member of Congress um, from Louisiana actually died of COVID-19, right. only 41 years old this week. And to me, that speaks to, you know, she's got the political considerations to be making, but there's also still a pandemic going on. And just the logistics of trying to run a 435 member body and all their staff during this time, um, I think it, it, my bet, you guys can chime in otherwise, is that she will get those votes. She knows how to count votes very well. But I think that there's a lot of challenges ahead. Yeah. And I would say, too, something to keep an eye on. You mentioned just the close margins in the House. Any big uh, you know, legislation that the Biden administration is going to be putting forward is going to have to work with those really close margins. And so many of the Californians who won, especially Republicans who flipped those seats this year, uh, are going to be part of those really swing votes on a lot of key issues, which will all play in to 2022. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go into some of the policy issues, key policy issues that the three of us will be keeping an eye on in the new year. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. Scott Schaefer is out this week, but I am thrilled to be joined by my fabulous teammates, Guy Marzarati and Katie Orr. This week, we're bringing you a preview of California politics in 2021. And I can officially report that as we record this, 2020 is just a few hours from being over. That- 
That's the best news. You will not hear better news in the rest of this podcast, you know. Um, So we want to turn to some of the policy issues that we're going to be following uh, in the new year. And I think we should start with education. This was the biggest news this week in California. Governor Gavin Newsom announcing a plan to spend $2 billion to bring back some K to second grade uh, in-person education as soon as February. Katie, this is something you've been talking about for a while, the need for a statewide guidance. You know, so far, ever since the summer has kind of been left up to districts to decide, um, you know, within the public health guidelines, how to bring back in-person education. Finally, these are some statewide guidelines. Right. I mean, and California has a very uh, locally driven education system. A lot of these decisions about, you know, the the funding and what they're going to do with state funding are left up to um, to local districts. But I think it's been something that has been extremely frustrating to parents. And Marisa could, you know, certainly attest to this, that throughout this pandemic, we've seen guidance on restaurants and businesses and, you know, hospitals and and even playgrounds, right? You know, whether or not you can go to them. But the school's picture has largely been um, lacking from the state perspective. Um, the Department of Ed did put out some, you know, guidelines and, and try to, like, sort of help districts with curriculum for online learning and stuff like that. But there was never a strong message from Newsom himself that, you know, we're going to reopen these schools by X date, or this is our metric for when we're going to reopen these schools. Now he's put this out. But as you mentioned earlier, I mean, this is in the middle of a surge of a pandemic. So the timing is just it's just a bit baffling. And again, it brings me back to political pressure. He's feeling political pressure. And so he put something out. And it is just a little bit, like I said, baffling that it's coming now. Yeah, I mean, okay, I'll start with my journalist hat. And then I'm going to put on my like parent (laughs) hat for a minute. But I I do think that it feels baffling for this to happen in the middle of the surge. On the other hand, you have the vaccine rolling out. You have the governor stepping up and finally making clear that in California, he wants teachers and school staff to be prioritized, which I think is a very important move because that is the biggest sticking point. And I believe rightfully so with teachers unions, right? Um, You know, I think that Everything we talk about when it comes to schools and COVID-19 needs to be underpinned by the reality that we have never had a, like an equitable and proper resourced school system period, full stop, right? So our schools were struggling prior to COVID-19. I don't see any reason that in the middle of a global pandemic that nobody knew how to handle, that we would expect them to be the first places to be able to reopen unless we as a society, and this goes, this is like with Newsom in control of the state, but also all of us, had back in, say, May, decided that that was the thing we were going to focus on. I mean, the truth is, you can reopen schools. We can try to do it in the next few months. I hope we do for the sake, particularly, of families that don't have, quite frankly, the privilege and resource that I do to be able to handle this and work from home and keep my job. But at the end of the day, like, we schools are a microcosm of the bigger world. And if cases keep surging, if we are not willing to make sacrifices around social gatherings and other places you know in our society where we that we rush to reopen prior to education i just don't see that whatever the state does it's going to make a difference so that's my kind of like rant um and i say this because everyone i know whether they go to private schools or childcare and preschools who has kids who are back at this point in california are constantly having scares are constantly having to reshut down schools 
Katie, if you want to, <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk about your own personal experiences, but you know, it's not like we do not, this does not exist in a vacuum. And so I just like, I agree. Like, I think Newsom should have had a plan in the spring and they should have prioritized this. And I think we should hold his feet to the fire. But I also am really reticent to only blame the governor when we do have so much, uh, you know, within our society that we just haven't dealt with this year properly. Well, for sure. I mean, and I don't know that it's only on the governor, but I will say that he is the leader of the state. I mean, one of the biggest states in the country. And we have heard, you know, not a lot. I won't say nothing, but not a lot from him. And in the meantime, his children have been back in school, in a private school, because he has the privilege to do that. And I think that that is just something that rubs people you know, the wrong way. Right. Well, I think Marisa hit the nail on the head, which is the vaccine distribution is going to drive so much of this, especially with schools, because the testing component of this really is a head scratcher to me. I mean, this idea that we, you know, under this plan could potentially for some uh, districts be testing kids and uh, staff every week. I mean, think about a place like Los Angeles. They're testing, you know, 700,000 people uh, every week. You look at there's, you know, 200,000 kids in K to three. Like it's just a hard stretch to believe that's going to be able to happen on a statewide basis. But obviously the vaccine could make a huge difference with that. I do want to move on quickly to some of the other stuff uh, we'll be following and, you know, segueing right into child care, which is something you've been following really closely, Katie. You've reported on the fact that the system, I mean, 6,000 child care centers closed during the pandemic. It seems like this system might be on the brink of collapse. Right. I mean, and this was a system that was struggling before the pandemic. Uh, The state had been taking steps to try and raise the reimbursement rate for providers who take care of kids that receive state subsidies. um, And that had been in the works. But then, of course, the pandemic hit, blew out the budget, and that kind of, you know, got all put on the back burner. There had been some support for uh, child care providers back in the spring, but that had run out. And the state had honestly put a lot of its hopes on a federal a stimulus package that would help. And of course, that never came through. We're seeing one uh, now a billion dollars for uh, California child care um, in part of this as part of this latest uh, COVID relief bill. And of course, child care workers are going to be prioritized in the vaccine line. So that is a step in the right direction. But I'll be interested to see, you know, what tangible effects this has on uh, child care providers going forward. Right. And Marisa, you've really been following, uh, you know, criminal justice developments. Obviously, it was a a huge uh, year on the ballot uh, for criminal justice reform, both in district attorney positions and also in ballot measures here in the state, a rejection of of efforts to overturn some of the reforms we've seen in California. What are you going to be watching in the new year? And also, I know you've had your eye on the Department of Juvenile Justice. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things here, guys. I think that it's going to be really um, important to yeah see how the state moves forward with this plan to close DJJ. They're going to be essentially telling counties they can no longer send young people uh, to a state lockup unless um, they've been charged as an adult. Um, and so that's going to be a big process. Um, I think one that, that there's more agreement around than other areas. Um, I think that the advocates are really going to be pushing to relook at some sentencing laws, potentially even three strikes. And I'll just say that I think the biggest... Um, 
like sort of physical place I'll be watching is Los Angeles County where George Gascon just got elected as district attorney and is actually being sued by his deputies who don't like some of the policy changes he's already made hmm. to charging decisions. So keep an eye on LA because I do think that that fight is going to be tell us a lot about how, you know, we talk so much about changing leadership and policing and, and law enforcement. Well, you can do that, but you need to bring the rank and file along with you. And if you can't change their hearts and minds, how can you make that work? Hey, Guy, finally, talk to us a little bit about voting. Um, we've mentioned Shirley Weber a lot on this show. What do you expect from her as the Secretary of State? Right. Well, I got to talk to Weber yesterday uh, on Wednesday, kind of just about her agenda for the office. You know, 2020, there were so many changes that happened so fast in the way that we were voting because of COVID-19. Obviously, sending every voter a ballot, you know, moving away from a lot of the traditional polling places that we've had. And Weber, you know, said that she's on board to continue that. She said she's open. You know, she wants to make that permanent, sending every voter a ballot. And I think we're just going to continue to see the transition away from traditional polling places to these kind of countywide vote centers, uh, you know, expansion of early voting. I think she's really behind that. She did say, interestingly, that she would like the legislature to take a look at the ballot collection laws in the state. You know, remember, there was this huge controversy over ballot collection, ballot harvesting when the Republican Party created their own private drop boxes. She says, you know, there might be a need to look at this, maybe make some regulations around labeling uh, ballot boxes going forward or kind of coming up with some rules around that. Um, I think the Republican Party would say no one had an issue with this until we did it. Um, But that's certainly something uh, for us to watch in the new year that I'll be keeping an eye on. And with that, we're just about out of time. So we're going to wrap it up for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Guy Marzarati. I'm Katie Oy. I'm Katie Orr. 2020. (laughs) There we go. Uh, Guy produced this week's show. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin, Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Just one last 2020 gaffe there, right? <laughs> um, I want to give two special shout outs as we end this year. One to Guy Marzarati, our fearless producer who does double duty very often, but has been going in and making all of this happen, as well as our engineer, Katie McMurrin. Yes. Katie, there's literally no way we could have made this show from our homes this year without you. We appreciate everything you do so much. Um, and we also appreciate our listeners. Thanks for tuning in through this crazy year. Happy New Year. And let's hope 2021 looks a little different. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.